on um, the four maxims of godliness as we work our way through Ephesians. The first one is a work of our head, right, that we have to know and grasp and sort of understand who God is and what he's done for us. The second one, a work of the heart, which is that we should spend time in adoration, loving, and, and just pouring out thanksgiving to God. Today, the third one is in full view. The third one is we will be changed. And so that's the third one is in full view. Now, because we're going to be changed, the way we're going to be changed is going to help us understand the work of God in us and will cause us to move into a spot of loving God and adoring him. And I'm using this adore adoration language on purpose because it's a bit jarring in our culture. We don't use it very often, do we? Adoration's sort of gone away. We don't talk about that we, had, we have adoration now. But we should. It's, a, it's valuable. Okay, so here we go. Let me introduce your t- you to yourself the way that you were before you might have met this Jesus fellow. Have you met this Jesus guy? Have you met him? Do you know him as your Savior? Well, if you don't, let me introduce you to yourself. If you have met him, let me introduce you to who you used to be. This is from Ephesians 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Just like everyone else. Now, the world will tell you that you're basically good. Have you heard that from them? People are basically good. They just need to be educated a little bit better. If the education process, if we just taught them better, then all this, all this sinless, all this lawlessness and sin would just go away. You know, if we just, if we just taught people better. Do you know, um, I actually think that if that were even an inkling of truth to it, if it was even slightly true, if education could fix what's inside the human heart, we would have figured out the best way to teach it. But it's not the problem. The problem isn't that we, don't just, we just don't know better. That assumption means that people are basically good, and they would do good on their own if, unless something led them astray. But let me remind you of this one little thing. Look into the deep heart of hearts that you have, Is there a spot where you can say, you know, I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm doing this anyway. Is there a spot in your life where you've done that? Maybe three, maybe somewhere in your life, maybe this morning, (laughs) maybe last week, maybe in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years ago. Because what happens is, is the Bible describes us as disobedient. That means we're not we're not morally ambivalent. We don't, just, we don't just sit here and have things act upon us. We're a moral agent on ourselves, and we follow our own ways. And from when we were little kids, when somebody had something we want more, there's a line that we just take it. There's a line from a movie, um, Guardians of the Galaxy, at the end of it, there's, there's the little um, 
raccoon that's been made something else. And he goes, would it be okay if I took this, took something from somebody? And he goes, no, that's theft. They said, but what if I want it more than that? He said, that's still theft. No, you don't get it. I want it more. That's the nature of our heart's just standard. I have a friend who is a nuclear subtech, and he was a wild nuclear subtech, right? Everywhere they went in the Navy, he did what he did. And he describes it this way, that he had spent his life walking deeper and deeper into the muck. Okay, so if you can imagine him up to his waist, this is what he says. I, he walked and he's up to his waist in his muck and he heard God calling and he turned and he accepted the Lord. The problem is what? He still hit deep in the muck. He has accepted God. He started to meet God, but he's got this different behavior that now he has to learn he will be changed. So this is the universal experience of a Christian, of a human of anybody, of the person sitting next to you in the pew, of the person that won't ever sit in the pew, of the guy who told me once that he would never be in a church until his box was in a church. By the way, my question to him was, why would you want your box in a church if you don't want to be there until then? But there are these people that are like the ones that they just... They, they're the picture of Christianity to you. This is their life. Except the most fabulous words in the Bible to me, my favorite two words in the Bible are next. And so I'm going to read them. And I'm going to go back half a sentence so that you get this. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of his incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. But God. Now, I want you to think for yourself, think of yourself as a moment as being a, a person sitting on a teeter-totter with all the weight of your sins on it and there's nobody on the other side that could possibly weigh enough to get you off the ground. Right? You're like this, and you got people, and they could jump on the other side. Have you ever seen that? And nothing happens. I remember sitting on the teeter-totter when my daughter was on it, and I would have to sit further up the bar because she was so small so, so that she could teeter-totter with me. But that's not the case of our weights. Everything on, on, with our sin... Our weight is so great on that side of the teeter-totter. Nothing can move it except for God, but God. The wages of sin is death. Super famous verse, right? Do you know what the other half of that verse is? But the gift of God is eternal life. 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You're sitting on your teeter-totter, and nothing can make it move except the weight of mercy that comes on the other sides and lifts you off the ground. Now, it doesn't come down so hard that it flings you off and into the next county because God is merciful in the way that he does it. He also knows what you've done and what's necessary for your forgiveness. So he doesn't just bring everything to bear on you that's for, you know, he doesn't forgive you when it could be the other person's stuff and all that stuff. He knows who's done what and he knows the forgiveness that's necessary and he does this and he pours this out on you, but God. You're headed in a certain way, but God, so rich in mercy, so gracious to us. Think for yourself. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? He's dead and he's in the tomb. And Jesus is, Jesus is amazing in the Gospels. And he's, he's raised people. He's healed people. And they've, people that have just died, they've, they've done that. And, and people that have been dead a day and everything. And then there's this story about Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead four days. Now, in Jewish tradition, four days would mean that the spirit has left the area. Okay, that's significant. In three days, if he's healed in two days, just dead, the spirit's kind of still hanging around, waiting to see what God does. But in four days, there's an old song by Carmen years ago where, where he has Lazarus in a praise meeting in heaven. And they're all given testimony about what God's done for him. And suddenly he hears Jesus at the tomb going, well, wait, I, you know, I knew Jesus this way, but I think I hear him calling my name now. And then he has to leave and come back. But I want you to think for a moment because this is the spot. This is where we are. This is hip deep in the muck and nothing to do about it. When they say, Roll away the tomb. And he says, no, Jesus, he stinketh. He's, he's going to smell bad. This is the story of Christianity, or pre-Christian living. No, he smoked. Don't, don't go in there. No, it's not going to smell good. But Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Have you heard that in your life? Have you heard this this way? Have you heard your name with a come forth in front of it? So when, next time I say, Lazarus, come forth, I'm going I'm to say my name. But I want you to say your name. Can you do that? So let's practice. One, two, three, Dave. You didn't say your name. <laughs> say your name. I'm expecting, this is the audience participation section <laughs> of the presentation. <laughs> One, two, three, Dave. Okay, okay, that was practice. Okay, you all ready? One, two, three, Dave, come forth. Did you hear your name? This is God calling you out of a lifestyle that wasn't going to do you any good and giving you a different one. Here's the way life works on earth. When we say we're really good, right, we start thinking things. And as soon as we have our thoughts long enough, have you ever meditated on a thought pretty soon? You acted on it. You thought, I think, I'm, I, I think I want to go on vacation. I think I want to go on vacation. Pretty soon you, you, you're visiting websites to find the hotels, right? That's how it is. You have a thought, and you plant that thought, and out of it comes. You grow an action. You start to live in a certain way. You say, I think, 
I think I deserve a candy bar every day, so I'm going to have a candy bar. And pretty soon you have a candy bar every day, right? Because you, you had this thought, and you, and you thought about it long enough, and pretty soon you started to do it. Well, the thing that happens about that is, is now you have a thought and an action, and those actions, you start to have that action. You do that long enough. What do you, you, you got? You've got yourself a habit. So from a thought to an action to a habit. Well, habits, they have a funny way of collecting sing- things that are nearby that are sort of similar to them. So, so not only do you have a candy bar every day, but now you're starting into the caramels and the mints. Right? Now, you know I'm using candy as an easy thing, but it could be anything. It could be, well, I only have one of those a day, but it's okay because I, I can handle it because I can handle it. But pretty soon you're having five of them. And pretty soon you're, you're out of control. Well, now instead of a, a habit, you have a character. And pretty soon you, this character, you know, when, when you plant a character, do you know what grows out of a character? A destiny. A destination is my, is my language for that. A destination. This is the definition of the wages of sin is death, Right? That, that you went to work and you get paid your wages and this is the wages and the wages is a ticket to someplace you don't want to go. But God, who is so rich in kindness and mercy that he pours out of his wealth so that we might be changed. It's like this, you've got your ticket to hell and you don't want to go there, but you, you just... There's nothing you can do about it. You're back on your teeter-totter, and there's nobody on the other side. And then suddenly somebody comes up and goes, here's a ticket to someplace else. You'll like this place better. And he starts to work backwards through your life. And, and, but what he did when he gave you that ticket, when you met this Jesus, when you had faith in Jesus, when you start to, when you start to trust him, is he changes your character. And out of that changed character, suddenly the habits start to change. And the habits start to change because little actions are different. And pretty soon your head, your head is completely renewed. Your, your thought life is different. So the world works this way, and we're so used to the world pointing us this way. And suddenly God turns us around, and he works completely backwards. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever to the earth, to us, to your neighbor, to you, anything but he still does it. Now, here's, the, here's this other little thing that I don't want you to think. Any, anything like this has happened, that it just happened without your willingness or that this is any type of self-help project. Remember, if we could figure out how to educate the human race into behaving better, we'd have figured that one out. This is not a self-help project. There isn't anything you can do about the problem in your life that keeps you sinning. But God can. Now, I'm going to tell you, he's going to change your life. He's going to implant something into you when you ask him and when you make this trust arrangement with him. And so he's going to do it, but this does not happen without your permission. Okay, so then you meet Jesus Can you be in the spot with me? Pretend for a second like you just met him and you just accepted him. And he's going to say, okay, now I need you to do some things. Now, in the Christian tradition, we call these disciplines, right? 
You're going to read your Bible. You're going to have to learn how to pray. You're going to have to do some good stuff for some other people. You're going to serve. You're going to, right? Disciplines do not create godliness in us. We do them to cultivate the work of God, to, to till up the soil in our own lives so that when God's interacting with us and calling us into this new life, we're ready and receptive to the work that he's doing. This is not self-help, and it's not God doing it without you. This is God doing it with you, in you, all the time, continually, ever, forever, wooing you into a deeper relationship with God. So you know him, great, further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis would say. Time, time to move in closer. You met him once. That, the project's not done because your heart's not quite right yet. Now, there's something else I want you to say or want you to hear. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It was a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Do you remember in the story Paul's telling in another book where after he's done certain things, he's going, I've run the race, I've won the crown, I've done all this stuff, I've got the crown of righteousness and all this stuff. Do you know why God sort of puts that thought in our mind? Because we still live on earth and there's sin here and we kind of need a carrot. We need the gold star when we do something good. We need to be recognized. By the way, do you know that God is like, a, a proud father, he's got his wallet with his buddies in heaven. You know who his buddies are. Those are the people that have gone before us. They call them the great cloud of witnesses. He pulls out his wallet and goes, <laughs> with all the pictures, and there's you. He goes, that's my kid. That's my kid. But you've earned this crown, and you come to heaven, and sin is gone there, and you don't need the crown anymore. That's what Revelation says. What? We take our crowns off, and we throw them at the feet of Jesus. We don't need them anymore. He's the ruler of the universe. He deserves all the work. But we walked on the path and we earned the crown. Yeah, and we needed the little crown, the gold star, the little award banquet because we have a little bit of sin in us and God's working through that with us. Here it is. So that none of us can boast of us, boast about it for we are God's masterpiece. He, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Do you feel like God's masterpiece? I mean, honestly, just take a second. Take a deep breath. Do you feel deep down in your heart of hearts that you are God's workmanship and that he's pleased with you and that he loves you? I hope so, because it's true. That's the word of Scripture. He is not the God that's out there saying, look, I really hope that they sin so I can zap them today. But, that, but, you know, there's a lot of the world that actually thinks that's what God's like, that he's looking like that. If we go to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten sons, whoever might believe in him, might not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know what's next? Do you know what's the next five verses? That, that the picture in the next five verses are literally, can, can you find those 
for me. Because I want to read them. I have this thing. Have you noticed that if I bring in a verse, I gloss it, but when I bring in more than one verse, I want to be seen reading it? So here we are, John 3, 17, 18, 19, and 21. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. Well, that makes perfect sense. If you've done bad stuff, you don't want to be seen. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for, sin, for fear their sins will be exposed. Right? If you think about that for a second, you've done stuff, the flashlight of holiness is upon you, and you go, <laughs> like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am undone, for I have seen the Lord, and I am a sinful man living among sinful people. And so I've refused to go in the light. Matter of fact, I jump out of the light and my first thought is God's looking for the sin. But those who do what is right come into the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Do you know what it means to do right in God's sight instead of hide? It means to say, I was wrong. I did something wrong. God, can you fix that for me? It's the exact opposite of, well, I did it, and so what? You are God's workmanship, and he is alive in you, and he is working in you, and he's wanting to change you, and he's making it possible. And his workmanship, his work, his character are so intertwined that the character of this loving God as he works in us is producing mature, fully human people. That's his work. Do you know how different that is from the world? The world uses people to get things done. If you're Pharaoh, the slaves in Egypt literally are, how many bricks can that person make? And if they can't make them anymore, we'll just get rid of them. Is that the world we live in? It is, isn't it? But God uses things to get people done go in the other direction. So great is his character of grace and mercy in us that it works to produce that same character within us so that our work might be his work, a work of blessing and truth and justice. So, we come down to the end of this and then there's a famous saying, saying W.H. Auden in a, in, uh, in a poem says that humans would rather, most rather be, be ruined than changed. Have you met somebody that would rather just stick it out the way they are than changed? They would just rather be ruined than changed? That's, what, that's true, isn't it? I mean, we're a little strong-willed somewhere along the line. If I were to admit I was doing wrong, I'd have to change. And so it's just easier to not admit I'm doing wrong and then I don't have to be changed. But the biblical picture is we've already been ruined 
by ourselves, and God will change us if we're willing. That he is so willing to do it, and he's so excited about it, and his stiff-neckedness doesn't bother him at all. Matter of fact, I think he's big enough to handle it. So here's this thing. Why does he do this? Why should we praise him? Why do we wrap our, our, our brains around this work of God in our lives? Why do we adore him for this? He did this for this. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us so that we might be sat upon the throne with his son as another child of his. Do you know what that means? That means that when Jesus prays in John 17, that by our unity, the world would know we are different. He's building us into his people, completely, utterly different, changed, wooed, called, whatever the word you want to use, called into a different life than we've ever experienced before or could experience without him. This is the call of Ephesians 2, that we would be changed, that the, creation, that the creator of the universe would start building a character in us that makes us different. Have you met this Jesus fellow that I'm talking about, this pal, this guy, this guy that walked in sandals a couple thousand years ago? Have you met him? Then you know some of this is... Then and I hope the tuning fork is going off inside you that this is true. If you haven't met him, I need you to do one thing for me. Find somebody that look, has some of that grace and mercy that you've seen in your life and ask them about it. If you can't find anybody, ask me. Lend me trust for just a little moment. But find somebody trustworthy to introduce you to Jesus. What a friend we have. We will be changed. Thank you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we move from this place into other places in the day, as we learn to worship you, as we learn to think about you, as we learn to honor the people in the pew next to us, in the parking stall next to us, in the line next to us, in the grocery store, can we recognize that you are wooing us by your incredible grace and mercy, not because we earned it, but because you loved us. Move in our hearts, Lord Jesus, and call us to be changed. Help us to recognize and plow up our own hearts. In your precious name, amen.